on today's episode. I think that if you look at the populist backlash against elites in recent years, especially in 2016, it has a lot to do with the sense among many working people that elites look down on them. This is what I mean by, uh, by the heavy hand of credentialism. Credentialism is the last acceptable prejudice. Welcome to the Active Share podcast that explores less obvious investing insights in a world that's always changing. I'm your host, Hugo Scott-Gall. Today, I am delighted to have with me Michael Sandel. Michael teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. His books, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, and Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do, were international bestsellers and have been translated into 27 languages. Michael's legendary course, Justice, was the first Harvard course to be made freely available online and has been viewed by tens of millions of people. His BBC series, The Public Philosopher, explores the philosophical ideas lying behind the headlines with participants from around the world. In his newest book, The Tyranny of Merit, What's Become of the Common Good, Michael argues that to overcome the crises that are upending our world, we must rethink the attitudes towards success and failure that have accompanied globalization and rising inequality. Michael, thank you very much for joining me today. Good to be with you, Hugo. Great. Okay, so simple but provocative question. Is it that you don't like meritocracy or you don't like the attitudes that it engenders? It's hard to separate the two, Hugo. The meritocratic ideal is very attractive in many ways. It says, if only chances could be made equal, then the winners would deserve their winnings. And when we think about merit in everyday life, we want well-qualified people to be assigned the social roles for which they're qualified. If I need surgery to be performed on me, I want to find a well-qualified surgeon. But the attitudes that have come along with meritocracy, especially in recent decades, have brought out its dark side. Because even though chances aren't truly equal, We have come to believe, those who've landed on top have come to believe, that their success is their own doing, the measure of their merit, and that by implication, those who've lost out must deserve their fate as well. And this has led to hubris among the winners, and it's generated resentment, even humiliation among the losers. So... I suppose you could say it's mainly the attitudes engendered by meritocracy that are its dark side. But the effect is that thinking in this way and organizing our politics in this way and our economy is corrosive of the common good, of the sense that we are all in this together. So could we have a more sympathetic meritocracy? Is that, would that be consistent with a, a democratic society? that can rub along quite well if it was more sympathetic? Or is it just in absolute terms that meritocracy sounds great, but actually isn't the best way of organizing a society? Whether we could have a more sympathetic meritocracy by us, I suppose what you're suggesting, Hugo, is a society where we did assign jobs and social roles to those best able to perform them. 
but no invidious attitudes or distinctions arose as a result. That's an interesting question to speculate about. It would depend, I suppose, on whether it went along with a culture of solidarity, the common good, but whether it could or not, it's hard to imagine because the belief that I deserve the benefits that flow from the exercise of my talents, that belief tends to make me forget the luck and good fortune that helped me on my way. There's almost a built-in tendency, I suspect, to consider my success my own doing under a meritocracy. And so it's very hard to stave off the sense of hubris that goes with it. If we could assign jobs and social roles based on qualifications, but at the same time, preserve a certain kind of humility, an appreciation of the role of luck in life can prompt a certain humility. There but the accident of fortune or the grace of God go I. If we could somehow generate culturally that attitude toward success, then perhaps we could have a kind of meritocracy less prone to the hubris that afflicts it today. When I read your book, I wondered whether you had read a book by Nassim Taleb called Fool by Randomness. And he's sort of making a similar argument to you, which is when a person's successful, they just say, well, of course I was successful. I was always going to be successful because I've got lots of qualities and I'm a winner. And his argument is, is that we're all fooled by randomness. Things are far more random than we care to appreciate. So I'm kind of wondering how you teach luck and humility. And certainly you know, for us in our business, we're investors and we, we think about success sometimes when we've had a good process that's led to a good outcome. If you have a bad process that leads to a good outcome, that's luck. But it's <laughs> difficult in, in, in the moments of victory to be very honest and say, well, were, were we just lucky or actually was this an outcome that is proportionate to the work we put in and the process we followed? Yeah, yes. Well, I think it's true. There is a powerful human tendency to be fooled by luck when we win, when we succeed, and to be keenly alive to the role of luck when we don't. And insofar as that is a powerful tendency in the way we interpret our lives and our fate, I think meritocracy has a bent toward a kind of hubris, the hubris that comes from forgetting the role of luck and also forgetting our indebtedness, our indebtedness for whatever talents and success we may have to family, teachers, coaches, neighborhood, community, country, the times in which we live. So our tendency to forget our good fortune, and our indebtedness for our success. This is a pretty powerful tendency among the winners, among the successful, especially in a society like ours where inequality of rewards has been deepening in recent decades. And it's interesting, Hugo, that if we look over the past four decades, when meritocratic sentiments, and I would say meritocratic hubris, have been intensifying, this has coincided with decades of growing inequality. It's almost as if 
those who land on top feel a greater and greater need to justify their winnings, so to speak, by the idea that we deserve it. We've earned it. We've done it on our own. Yeah, I want to explore that further a little bit later. Before we get there, I just want to talk to you about talent. Is the existence of talent maybe overstated? Is it the ease of identifying talent overrated? How important a thing is talent? What is it and how should we measure it? Or even should we measure it? It's interesting. Those who defend the idea that the winners deserve their winnings often point to very specialized forms of talent, virtuoso talent, the great violinist, the great athlete. But relatively few of the, or put it this way, a relatively small proportion of the actual inequalities of income and wealth that we see today really are due to virtuoso talent on the part of those who flourish in the new economy. Even though we sometimes flatter ourselves, in, in, or the winners do, in thinking that. Mostly it has to do with the way the economy is configured and with the particular talents and skills and contributions that our society happens to prize. We can think about this more concretely, perhaps, by taking a case of athletic talent. Sitting here in the U.S., I'm thinking of LeBron James, the great basketball player whose team just won an NBA championship. Now, LeBron James is a very talented basketball player. He works hard, to be sure, to cultivate his talents. He practices hard, but so do lots of other basketball players, and they're not as good as LeBron or as successful or as highly paid. And yet LeBron is favored by fortune in two ways. First, having the talents in the first place. But more than that, LeBron is fortunate to live in a society that loves basketball and rewards it handsomely. Had he lived back during the Renaissance, they weren't that interested in basketball back then. They cared more about fresco painters. So this is another dimension of the contingency of who gets lavish with material rewards and who may struggle to get by that really has, has little to do with talent as such. It has to do with what this society at this moment happens to prize and reward. Well, Warren Buffett says if he had been born in the middle of Africa versus Nebraska, his life would have been very different, like completely different. But he, was, he had the good fortune to be born when he was born, where he was born, in an environment where his talents could absolutely flourish. But the reward yeah. on his talent was contingent on those things. It wasn't an absolute talent that would have had the same outcome wherever he was born, whenever he was born. I think you'd be very sympathetic to that point. I am. I think Warren Buffett has articulated this point very powerfully. And I think the point Warren Buffett makes is very much in line with the theme of the tyranny of merit. Well, one of the, I mean, there are many things you can learn from, from Buffett and probably equally many from his partner, Charlie Munger. 
one of the things he says is that he's found in his working life that measurements of IQ is pretty difficult. And he's not so sure that when he's thinking about investing in a company, he cares a lot about the integrity of the management. But he's not sure that academic credentials are that powerful a predictor. In your book, you have a chapter called around credentialism, which you yeah. describe as the last acceptable prejudice, which is a very interesting way of describing it. And it may even be more than that. It may be even heresy. And that credentialism, you think, is a very powerful thing. So could you explain kind of what you mean by credentialism and why you think it is the last acceptable prejudice? Yes. In the meritocratic society we have, merit is measured in large part by the conferring of credentials, which typically means attending university, getting an advanced degree. In fact, stepping back and looking at public discourse, the way politicians and political parties have responded to the growing inequality of recent decades has not been to take on that inequality directly, trying to reconfigure the structural inequalities in the economy, but to offer something else, to offer a kind of meritocratic promise of individual upward mobility. Politicians, and one sees this in the US, in Britain and elsewhere, have said, if you want to compete and win in the global economy, go to college. What you earn will depend on what you learn. You can make it if you try. So what they are saying in effect to a great many workers whose wages have been stagnant for four decades is, well, if you get yourself a better education, if you get credentialed, then maybe you too will be able to rise and to flourish. Now, in one way, this rhetoric of rising, as I call it in the book, is inspiring. Of course, people should be able to rise as far as their efforts and talents will take them, regardless of background. That's inspiring. But it's also very limited, Hugo, as a way of responding to the inequality and wage stagnation that a great many workers have experienced in recent decades. And not only that, it leads to a kind of credentialism in which those who do achieve university degrees tend to look down on those who haven't, because it's almost as if they say to themselves, they could have gone to college, they could have gone to university, but they didn't. And so a great many of them struggle. This is especially invidious when we remember that most people don't have a four-year university degree. Nearly two-thirds do not. The figure is similar in Britain, in most European countries. So I think it's folly to create an economy that creates as a necessary condition for dignified work and a decent life a university degree. And yet it reinforces the credentialism, the sense that those who haven't been to college must have failed to exercise the proper initiative. And I think that if you look at the populist backlash against elites in recent years, especially in 2016, it has a lot to do with the sense among many working people that elites look down on them. This is what I mean by 
by the heavy hand of credentialism. Credentialism is the last acceptable prejudice. And do, do you think there's a challenge in, in the market for talent, and, and it's quite asymmetric. If you're an employer trying to work out who has the talents and skills and abilities and characteristics required for the job you're seeking to fill, it's imperfect information. So is it that the credentialist system is the least bad sorting mechanism? And, and so do we need better sorting mechanisms? And that could come from one day maybe a sort of super piece of artificial intelligence that's much better able to assess human abilities? Or is it, and this gets onto your idea of the lottery for slightly stretching the point now, but for admissions into heavily oversubscribed universities like your own, where there are thousands and thousands of people with a hair's breadth between them in terms of ability and achievements and pristine resumes. Do we need to think about sorting differently and that credentialism was maybe the least bad, but still a long way from being optimal? I think we do need different sorting mechanisms, less tied to credentialism of the kind we have today. Uh, which is not very predictive. It's also highly skewed by class background. In the first instance, if we're thinking about admission of students to highly selective colleges and universities, there's an excessive reliance, I think, on standardized tests, the SAT in the US, as it's called, which is essentially a kind of IQ test, or that's at least how it was originally conceived. But in practice, it tracks family income very, very closely. And so I think that for admission, we should certainly rely less on that test. But I go further in the, in the book and offer what may be a suggestion that will get me into trouble in my neighborhood, which is that here to be concrete, Harvard and Stanford get more than 40,000 applicants each year for 2,000 places in the freshman class. And the admissions officers tell us that most of them are well-qualified, could flourish at these places, could do the work and do it well. So what I propose in the book is that the admissions office calls out those who are not well-qualified, and then with the group left, would it be 20,000, 25,000, perhaps, do a lottery for a couple of reasons. First, it's not really possible to make the fine-grained judgments and predictions of an 18-year-old applicant as to who will be, who will have the greatest impact for the good on the economy, on the society, on politics, on science. Perhaps one can do this with a small handful of math prodigies, predict who will become a great mathematician. But otherwise, it's pretty hard to judge 18-year-olds. I offer an example from the world of sports. The greatest uh, quarterback in football history in the US, Tom Brady, who played for the Boston Patriots, New England Patriots, until just recently. When he was 18 years old, and he was drafted, he was the 199th draft pick. So if it's, it's impossible to predict with any certainty at age 18 
so narrowly circumscribed a skill as the ability to throw a football, how much more difficult is it to predict at age 18 who will really make a substantial impact, whether in the world of academia or business or politics or law? I think we're fooling ourselves. But there's a broader point, which is by admitting students through a lottery of the qualified, if we can call it that, it would be a way of calling into question among students and among their parents who've been pressuring them for a great many years to compete for meritocratic credentials, a way of reinforcing the role of luck, of sending the message about how much in this selection process is the result of luck, and maybe that would tamp down to some degree the meritocratic hubris. By extension in business, I think that many times academic credentials are used as a sorting mechanism, even though those academic credentials are not very closely related to the actual job that the person will perform. So I think we should move away from that, though I would not put great reliance on artificial intelligence as a way of of doing the sorting. I would rather have more broadly based forms of judgment that are attuned to the kinds of roles that the employee will perform. So tell me, when you're teaching your class at Harvard, if you ask everyone for a show of hands, which system they prefer for admission, the current one or or move to lottery, A, have you done it? What was the result will be? If you haven't done it, what would you predict the result would be? I've not done it yet because I only just, uh, the book only just came out and I hadn't thought to propose this until now, but I will try it. And perhaps I'll let you know, Hugo, what the result is. But here's what I would predict. I predict there will be divided opinion. Yeah. Because I think that a great many students, having gone through this stress-strewn meritocratic gauntlet of pressure through their high school years, have come to believe, hard not to believe, that their effort is what led to their success in winning admission. That meritocratic tournament almost enforces the belief, this connects with something we were discussing earlier, almost enforces a kind of forgetfulness of the role of luck and fortune and indebtedness. So the idea that effort accounts for having one admission to a selective university is hard to avoid. And yet I think some students will on reflection recognize the role of luck and the role of life advantages that have enabled them to win admission so my guess is it will be a split vote, Hugo, but I'll let you know. So I, I was going to ask you next, really around jobs and two aspects to jobs and dignity around work. One of which is around the risk of automation and technology eating further into the number of jobs that can be done by humans versus machines. And does that lead to a shortage of quality jobs 
and the second follow-on around COVID and, and what we may have learned from this sort of pandemic. So if we just start by giving dignity back to certain jobs, but then at the same time the threat of those, the threat to, to those jobs posed by the march of technology and automation in particular. Yes. It is certainly the case that technology is transforming the workplace. And the fear is that technology is coming for a great many jobs, including some relatively skilled jobs. But I think that we should not mistakenly assume that the direction of technology is fixed, an external factor outside of human influence or direction or control. To a large extent, we can, by we I mean society generally, can direct the course of technology by deciding what innovations are worth investing in. And I think one of the guiding principles in deciding what technologies to invest in should be with an eye to the dignity of work. First of all, technology will not so much replace jobs as supplement them in various ways, making some jobs more productive, others less so, or perhaps even some jobs unnecessary. So I think it, we should consider this to be a public question, open to public discussion and debate. How can we, through our investments, encourage those forms of technological innovation that make work, existing jobs, more productive? And this, I think, can go some way toward enabling technology to contribute to the dignity of work rather than drive it out. I think it's important that the, the alternative to focusing single-mindedly on equipping people for meritocratic competition is a different kind of political project. And that should focus on the dignity of work. What does the dignity of work require? And part of it requires investing in those forms of technological innovation that make workers more productive and therefore enhance the demand for their skills and their wage levels in the market. Now, as for the pandemic, the pandemic has been revealing with regard to work and this question of the dignity of work because it's brought home to all of us, but especially those who have the luxury of working remotely, how deeply we depend on workers we often overlook. I'm thinking not only of the hospital workers who are caring for COVID patients, but for delivery workers, warehouse workers, grocery store clerks, home health care providers, truckers, these are not the best or most honored in our society. And yet now we are recognizing them as essential workers, as key workers. This could be the beginning, an opening perhaps, of a broader public debate about the dignity of work about what counts as essential work, and a debate about how to bring into better alignment pay and social recognition with the importance 
the jobs that we now regard as essential. Whether we will really have such a debate is, is very much up to us. It's an open question. But I think this awareness Hugo, could prompt a debate about the dignity of work and how better to reward it. It certainly feels that a positive to come out of this pandemic a few and far between, but that does feel like one of them with the heavy caveats so far. There's certainly been a, a recessing of appreciation around the kind of jobs you've just described. And, and in some cases, there may well be a change in actual financial reward as well. Whether that will still be the case if there's the all clear and two, three years time we moved on, I don't know. And I guess that that maybe might be my final question to you in a minute around kind of causes for optimism around this whole issue. But if, if I could just briefly talk a little bit, bit about ESG, environmental, social and governance, which is an increasingly big thing in the investment world. And I think something you could argue really is, is shifting. If you go back to the day of Milton Friedman, he says the purpose of the company is to generate a profit for its shareholders. And that's it. We're seeing now that actually the purpose of a company Part of his existence is the social license to operate. There is a shift in attitudes between, well, is this a good company? Does it do good? How it does, what it does, is that good? It's broader ecosystem. Those questions are increasing and will only increase, we think, from here. So this notion around actually what is doing good and maximize profit, that's quite a shift already. So I'm just wondering, have you thought, have you observing this, growing trend in, in investing, sort of how people are investing, the kind of companies they're investing in as they test them against, how do they score on these key areas, environmental, social and governance? Is that something as an observer you can see as a force for good and a positive change? Is that, is that something you've kind of taken an interest in and does it make sense to you? Yes, yes, on all counts, Hugo. I think it is a very hopeful and important step for investors to be increasingly aware of the environmental and social impact of the companies in which they invest. For decades now, we've lived by Milton Friedman's picture, this very narrow picture of how corporations serve the common good, but it's too narrow. It misses the social license. Uh, it misses the broader social purpose of corporations, and for that matter, of a capitalist economy. One of the mistakes we've made under the shadow of this very narrow conception of maximizing shareholder value as the sole purpose of a company, there's a narrower assumption of an even more faithful kind. We slide into the assumption that the money people make is the measure of their contribution to the common good. This is part of the problem that we've been discussing with the meritocracy that we have bought into. And what this does is to outsource our moral judgment about what the common good really is to markets. And we do this as almost out of a certain kind of moral and civic laziness. We realize that to debate for ourselves what counts as contributing to the common good, whether for an individual or for a company, that can be controversial. 
people can have different views about what actions by a company or an individual really do contribute value to the economy and the common good. But I think this is the discussion that we need to have. The alternative is to outsource this judgment, which is a moral and civic judgment, to markets. But markets can't answer these questions for us. And so I think when investors take on thoughtfully and deliberately the question of what companies really are contributing value to the common good, their role on, in the environment, the way they treat their workers, their impact on the communities they serve. These are the questions I think that we should be asking as investors and also as democratic citizens. We need to take back the question of the common good and put it right at the center of our deliberation, of our decision-making, whether as investors or as citizens. So this I see, Hugo, is a very hopeful sign. I would agree with you. I've been in this industry quite a long time and, and things are changing and they really are different from even five years ago. And I think this will only increase from, from here and that there will be more scrutiny. And I think also the scrutiny will be less sort of outsourced, as you say, sort of outsourced to markets. I would even say outsourced to credential experts to give their view. I think more and more yes. investors will have to decide, okay, what are my beliefs and values? And that will inform how I invest and what I what I reject as well um, when it comes to investing. So actually, I do think there is really quite positive change here. And price signals, allocation of capital is a way, not the way, is a way of of change. So I, I think there's there's quite a lot happening here, which is, gives cause for optimism, and certainly gives cause for optimism around around your argument. So I, I guess we've talked around income inequality. We've talked around some of the political effects of meritocracy. What sort of politics do you think we're going to get if we carry on unchecked on the path we're on in terms of sort of civic debate? And what sort of politics could we have given the world we're in? But if we were to adopt some of your ideas, how, how much could that change maybe political outcomes, but certainly the discourse, the debate, the process? I think one of the most dispiriting and dangerous aspects of civic life today is the impoverished state of public discourse. What passes for public discourse these days consists either of narrow managerial technocratic talk, which inspires no one, or where passion does enter, we have shouting matches where partisans shout past one another without really listening. I think this empty public discourse is what so many people find frustrating about politics today. And we're also struggling with the result of a kind of authoritarian populist backlash against elites looking down on working people. So it seems to me that uh, the hope, the hope for a better kind of public discourse depends on a couple of things. One of them is to bring 
ethical arguments more directly into our civic debate. We should not outsource our moral judgments, our debates about what counts as the common good. We should not outsource them either to markets or to technocratic elites. They can't decide these questions for us. And by us, I mean democratic citizens. So we need a morally more robust kind of public discourse than we have today. One that addresses questions of values head on, not because we'll agree about all of those values, but because we may learn something about one another and may heal the rancor and the polarization that afflicts our public life. Beyond that, and this goes back to the debilitating effects, the dark side of meritocracy, uh, Hugo, I think that we need a kind of moral turning, reconsidering the meaning of success, questioning our meritocratic hubris. Because insisting that my success is my due makes it hard to see myself in other people's shoes. Appreciating the role of luck in life, the sense in which I'm indebted, can prompt a certain humility there, but for the accident of birth or the luck of the draw go I. And this spirit of humility, I think, is one of the civic virtues we need now. It can be the beginning of the way back from the harsh ethic of success that drives us apart. It can point, perhaps, beyond the tyranny of merit toward a less rancorous, more generous public life. Michael, that was a great way to finish. Thank you for all of your answers, but in particular, thank you for, for setting out your vision so clearly. It was great. I really enjoyed our conversation. I got a lot from it. So thank you again. So I'm going to give a plug for a previous podcast we've done. Have you ever heard of a gentleman called Brunello Cuccinelli? I haven't. He is self-made Italian, uh, not self-made Italian, self-made billionaire. He's Italian, but he's, he preaches humanistic capitalism. So his big thing is I want to make a fair profit. I don't, want to ha I don't have to have the highest margins in my industry. What I care about is making a fair profit. So I'm selling a product customers like and I'm happy to pay the price, but I want to treat my suppliers well. I want to treat my employees well. We went to visit him. He's paid for a whole village in Italy to be renovated and rebuilt, and it's beautiful. And we saw his head office, and the, the, the best room, the best space in the office is dedicated to the guys that work in the mailroom because he says they have probably the worst job in the building, so I'm going to give them the best view. He's an interesting guy, and I think you would, just to be aware of him, I think you would find him interesting because he is preaching something different. He talks about dignita, dig dignity a lot. And how it's very, very important to him that he treats his employees with dignity. No one can receive an email after 5 p.m. But, you know, he said, you can talk to anyone I do business with and you, I'm incredibly consistent. And this is my thing. This is my thing, which is I want to make a fair profit, but I want to do it in a humanistically excellent way. And that's kind of his life mission. So I thought he might be, if you've never heard of him, and he sells very expensive cashmere, so I can understand why he wouldn't, but interesting person for you just to sort of be yes. aware of. Read up yes. Thank you so much for that. I'll, I'll definitely look him up. I would like to learn more about him. And more broadly, the, the outlook that you're describing and the initiatives within investment to take greater account of these humane and civic considerations 
I think is a very encouraging and important development. So I wish you well with this. And I've so enjoyed this conversation, Hugo. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say that. I'm sure you're doing an awful lot of these at the moment. I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed um, your book. I think it's, it's, it's provocative, different, and most importantly, I think it's right. So thank you for giving us the time. You know, I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I'm optimistic in what we talked about around ESG and investing. And I'm, I'm optimistic around the fact that you're talking around this means the chances of, of things changing goes up, not down. Well, thank you, Hugo. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Active Share. To hear additional insights from William Blair Investment Management, visit us at blog.williamblair.com. The Active Share is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. For questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear discussed, email us at podcastim at williamblair.com. This content is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or to adopt any investment strategy. Investment advice and recommendations can be provided only after careful consideration of investors' objectives, guidelines, and restrictions. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of this recording, are subject to change without notice as economic and market conditions dictate, and may not reflect the views and opinions of other investment teams within William Blair Investment Management. Factual information has been obtained from sources we believe to be reliable, but its accuracy, completeness, or interpretation cannot be guaranteed. Any discussion of particular topics is not meant to be comprehensive and may be subject to change. This material may include forecasts, estimates, outlooks, projections, and other forward-looking statements. Due to a variety of factors, actual events may differ significantly from those presented. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Any investment or strategy mentioned herein may not be suitable for every investor. References to specific companies are for illustrative purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security. William Blair Investment Management may or may not own any securities of the companies referenced. It should not be assumed that any investment in the companies referenced was or will be profitable.